All right. I'm going to ask a question that I'm certain that you guys have, have experienced before, but how many of you have experienced somebody that just has a peace in their life that you can't explain? And you look around and you see everything they're going through, you see everything they're experiencing, and you go, how do they have that kind of peace in their life? I don't understand what that is. And conversely, you've also seen individuals who have no peace, but they also don't have that many problems. You know what I'm talking about? Now don't look, everybody eyes up here, okay? Don't look at the person you invited to church today, okay? But you know people who somehow just can't be peace. They can't find peace. That no matter what the world gives them, no matter what hand they're dealt, they just always seem flustered. They always seem out of sorts. They're never really comfortable, and they certainly don't have peace. We're wrapping up this series, Living Your Best Life, where we've talked about kind of four things that we learned through the life of Daniel that if we apply to our lives and we're able to kind of grasp it and have these attitudes and have these viewpoints and apply them to life, that we would see that we would really be living our best life. And today is key. The one today is going to be very important because it's one of the most important ones that Daniel demonstrates time after time after time again. So, we're going to be in Daniel chapter 6. Let me give you the, the, the what for. So, Daniel chapter 6, remember we talked last week about how pride and arrogance will tear you apart and how it actually tell, tear, tore, teared, tore the king. I, you'd think I do this for a living. But tore the king Belshazzar completely apart, just ruined his kingdom because of his pride and arrogance of him thinking that he was better than God. If you remember, King Nebuchadnezzar, his grandfather, walked out onto the, platform, or walked out onto the stoop of the, kingdom, of the castle and he said, oh, look at this amazing kingdom I've built. I am so great. I, I, I. And right away, God struck him and handled his arrogance. And the same thing happened to Belshazzar. So we know about that, but we talked about the Persians and how they were taking over the city of Jerusalem at that time. Well, now Daniel, who's probably almost 80 at this point, this was the last kingdom he would serve under, Daniel is now serving again as an advisor to the king. Now, not at the same level he was when it was Nebuchadnezzar or Belshazzar, but it was, you know, the same view. It was the same, the, the same thing. He had some influence in the king's court. So here we are again. And he consistently has this influence because he's so wise. And he consistently has this influence because he's trustworthy. And as we're going to see, again, the, the uh, court officials, they say the same things about him that the court officials in Nebuchadnezzar's day said about him. Because remember, Daniel was captured probably when he was like 13. So when he was a young boy, he was captured from Jerusalem, maybe even younger than that. And then over time, he got to a place of position of authority. So here we are, Daniel talking to the king. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators. Again, totally different kingdom, different leadership, but Daniel just did the right things at the right time, and he distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. What he means is administrate to the kingdom. He doesn't mean actually be the leader in any form or fashion. He means that he would have influence and manage or administrate the entire kingdom. 
And this made a few of the leaders very angry. Because here's this Jew that has been conquered three times now by three different nations, his, his nation has, and you're going to listen to him, and somehow he's going to be elevated above the Persian people that are inside of this court? I mean, come on, king, that doesn't make any sense. Not to mention, he's an elderly fella. He's pretty wise, pretty smart, and a lot of those people feel a little insecure around him because of everything that he's able to do. So they wanted him, the other administrators and satraps and officials, they wanted him gone. Because why wouldn't you, right? That's what you did in those days. There wasn't a, hey, let's grab a meeting and talk about it. It wasn't a, we've got to find this guy and get in the right position. It's not what was best for the kingdom or what was best for the team. It was always what was best for me. So they wanted to get rid of Daniel. And it tells us that. At this, the administrators and satraps tried to find grounds to charge against Daniel in his conduct of governing affairs. They were unable to do so. They could not find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, against this man Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. Imagine that. He lived such a life above reproach that they couldn't find anything to charge him with. They couldn't find anything to put all over Fox News or CNN. They couldn't find anything. They couldn't find anything to talk about on YouTube and do, you know, a two, three-minute clip on YouTube. They couldn't find anything. They couldn't find anything to post about on social media. I mean, come on, think of that. Twitter was silent when Daniel was there. So how on earth are we going? So they sit around and they go, okay, well, how are we going to eliminate him now? Because this is totally political. Same thing that we deal with today. This is not new. In fact, it's not new that politicians are trying to get after each other. It's not new. It happens all the time. It happened back then. You can read it right now. They looked at him and they go, we got to get rid of this guy. But man, he is such, he's so smart. He's so wise. He's trustworthy. I can't even tweet anything bad about him. So what do we got to do? Well, you know, he's a religious person. And he follows that Yahweh character from that Jewish kingdom way back in the day. So I bet, I bet that if we do something that violates something as God says, then we can probably get him. Then we can probably handle it. But we can't get him unless it's something like that. Now imagine, just for a second, that if we were able to live our lives that way. Like just, just as the way we behave as humans. That there would be no corruption, no negligence, Nobody was ever able to say, you know, I dealt with that guy one time, or that girl one time, and it was awful. And you know what? They, they, they kind of bend the truth. They kind of do this. Or, hey, they gossip a lot. They talk a lot behind your back, right? I mean, imagine if we were able to live our lives, and this isn't a sermon, this is just a little nugget of information. Uh, imagine if we were able, somebody was able to say the same thing about us. Where they go, yeah, man, only, the only way you're going to get them they're not dishonorable in any way. The only way you're going to trip them up is if you violate their faith. That's the only way. So, just a, just a thought. So the royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors, so all the homies, got together and they all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days except to you, these guys are talking to the king. They get an audience with the king and they say, hey, come here, king. We, want, we got an idea. Okay, we got an idea. We think, because you are so phenomenal and so amazing, like you're great, 
I mean, you gave us two pieces of bread today instead of one. We're so happy you're the king. So for, as the king, we think that we should issue a decree that anyone who prays to any god, little g god, any god, any religion at all, because what they would do in the kingdom is they would allow other religions to exist. That's how you kept people happy. When you conquered a nation, you didn't totally destroy their god because that's how you'd get like huge uprisings and rebellions. So the Babylonians kind of figured this out, and then so far the Persians grabbed the same thing, and they go, well, hold on a second. We can do this. So we can just let these little religions pop up. No big deal. Temple over there, temple over there, whoever, whatever. We don't care. Just keep paying your taxes, right? So they don't care. There's no issue here. So that's what they're doing. Go ahead. Do, do, do your business. No problem at all. But hey, for the next 30 days, King, we think, this is a great idea, kind of a uniform. It's a team-building exercise, King. Uh, we think, Your Majesty, that people should only be allowed to worship and pray to you. That anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days, except to you, Your Majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. I mean, come on, King, that totally makes sense. I mean, we should not talk to them. We should not figure out what their belief is. We should just throw them into the den of lions So whatever. Here we go. They wanted to issue a decree in such a way that it elevated it above the law. They wanted to, to, to create something. They wanted the king, and the king had this power to issue a certain decree to put it into place that it could not be repealed by anybody, including himself. That's what they were after. And they knew that if they could get this and get him to write this decree into order, he wouldn't go back on it, and Daniel would be hurt for it. They wanted to trap Daniel. They wanted to trap Daniel in a corner, trap him into, uh, and destroy his reputation because he had something that they wanted, power. He had power and influence. They wanted it. They didn't want him here. So they began to play the game. So they did. The king issued the decree in accordance with the law. And then the law got elevated to the point where even the king couldn't repeal it. So now this is a standing order in the kingdom. Nobody worships anybody except the king. Nobody prays to anybody except the king. I don't know how much you guys know about God and about particularly God in the Old Testament, but you want to make him mad? Pray to somebody else. Worship an idol. Put something else where he belongs. And right away, Daniel sees this. Now when Daniel had learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. And three times a day, he got down on his knees. And he prayed. He prayed anyway. He prayed anyway. He didn't care. He was not about to stop what he was doing because of this. Notice he didn't throw his hands up and gave up worshiping God for 30 days. He didn't do that. He didn't do that at all. He didn't get angry and then go on the warpath for the careers of these men that he know went out against him. He didn't do that either. He didn't sit back and take the, the position of trying to destroy them on Twitter, right? Like he didn't go that route. He sat back and he didn't whine or get upset about it either. 
Like, he, he, there's no psalm of Daniel going, oh, Lord, I can't pray to you, whatever. Shall, like, there's not that. There's none of that. He simply did what he had always done. He got up and he prayed anyway. And sometimes you need to pray anyway. Daniel knew what he was doing. He knew the risk he was taking. He understood what could happen if the king found out and what would happen when these guys found out. Because he's not dumb. He's been playing this game for 60-something years. So he looks around and he goes, cool, I'm going to pray anyway. Sometimes we need to pray anyway. Don't shy away, okay, and this is going to be so uncomfortable for some of us for just a second, especially if you're an introvert. Um, don't shy away from your faith because you're afraid of what somebody might say. Don't shy away from it. Don't, okay, this is one I see all the time and one I've been guilty of in the past. Don't refrain from praying over your lunch because your coworkers don't believe how you do. You don't have to force, and I'm not telling you to force your faith on them. You don't do that. That's not the way that works. That's not the way Jesus did it. That's not the way we do it. But we also won't be a group of people that are afraid to pray to our Heavenly Father because, hey, if we pray, maybe somebody is going to be offended or maybe somebody's not going to like it or maybe somebody's going to feel uncomfortable. We can't do that. There's times when we just simply need to pray anyway. In fact, it's oftentimes an excellent way for a door to open where somebody might talk to you about faith. You take the praying at lunch example, okay? Now, you, now, remember what Jesus said when you take this into account. Anybody remember what he said? Don't babble on like the pagans. <laughs> don't do that. I don't know, but I don't think that at lunch in the office is the place where you need to start praying in tongues, okay? <laughs> Probably not tongues of fire moment. Probably it's, you know, kind of like Jesus where it's just like, hey, quick, prayer right here. I'm acknowledging that God has given me this, that I'm in this position to eat this food with no worry about starvation because my Heavenly Father has given me the opportunity to do that. So, we don't want to do that, right? And, and to be honest, it'll allow people to see that, hey, those Jesus followers, those church people, those Christians, they're not as weird as some people make them out to be, right? Because, I mean, let's be honest, the church has earned a little bit of the... Uh, the attitude. Some people that don't believe in the faith believe we're a bunch of blubbering weirdos. That's what, can I be completely honest? Can I be candid for just a second? That's what I believed before I actually became a Christian and started interacting with Jesus and the church. I used to think like, man, those people will pray over anything. And I came from a very charismatic background in a church. So I thought everybody did that. And I thought every prayer had to be that way. So that's what I thought. But when I started to see that that wasn't the case, it opened a door to faith. And I want to encourage you. It can open a door to faith. And you should just pray anyway. Pray anyway. Don't be loud. Don't be obnoxious. Don't do that. But don't, don't we've talked about compromise a couple weeks ago. Don't compromise your faith because of what you're afraid these people might think or say about you. Your devotions to Jesus 
not to them. And who cares what they think, right? You do what you know you need to do. Again, not being obnoxious. The pastor did not just give you a card to go be an obnoxious prayer at lunch, okay? So when we leave here, remember that. If you leave here and you're taking your dad to lunch and somebody starts standing up praying, beating the table, just grab them, sit them down and say, Pastor said you can't do that, right? I'm just kidding. Don't put your hands on people. That's how you get hurt. Um, <laughs> Daniel continues. He continues to record what happened. So three days he got up and down, he got down on his knees and he continued to pray. Three times a day, didn't slow him down. He prayed anyway, knowing the repercussions, knowing what people were going to say, knowing what people were going to think. He prayed anyway. Then these men, talking about all the administrators and officials who wanted Daniel to get messed up because of this, they went as a group and they found Daniel praying and asking God for help. And they had exactly what they needed. They had exactly what they needed to do what they had wanted to do to Daniel from the beginning. So they went to the king and they spoke to him about his royal decree. And they're very, they got a little attitude here. They say, did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days anyone who prays to any God human being except you, your majesty, would be thrown into a lion's den? They're almost repeating it, you know. Like, I don't know if you've ever had these people that you work with, but uh, in the Marine Corps, we'd have these guys that I did not because I'm a, I was a Christian at the time, but I wanted to punch in the face because they would walk in with the order, right? And they would say, Sergeant, the order says, and boy, I'm about to show you what that order says, right? And, and they would come in and they would read it. And they would say, this is what it says about the uniform, and I'm allowed to have white socks or black socks or whatever. And it used to drive me insane. This is what they did to the king. They bring the decree that he just signed, bring it into him and say, hey, king, homie, don't you remember? You wrote it down. Don't you remember? I mean, come on. He said, you said that nobody's going to be able to do this. And the king answered, the king stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, which can't be repealed. I can't change it. You're right. I signed it into order. There's nothing that I can do. Then they said to the king, <laughs> do we have something for you, king? Uh, Daniel, who's one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you. Think of the offense if you're the king. He pays no attention to you. He doesn't listen at all. Cares nothing about what you have to say your majesty, or the decree that you put in writing. So you wrote it down, that's supposed to give things more weight. He said, nah, he ain't doing that. He still prays three times a day. Come on, we got to get rid of him, king. You know what's up. And when the king heard this, he was greatly distressed because he loved Daniel. Daniel was his guy. Daniel was a smart one, come from kingdoms before. He was the one that would advise the king on things to do, both with the Jews and with the Babylonians, because he lived through both kingdoms. He was a wise man and a useful tool for the king, and there was some sort of friendship maybe uh, that, that existed there before. And he was determined to rescue Daniel and make, made every effort until sundown to save him. And day after day, day after day, Time after time, Daniel didn't compromise his values. We talked about that over and over and over again. What's amazing here 
was Daniel's response. His response. He just is like, no, I'm not violating it. I'm not going to do that. He doesn't say, oh, you know what, king, you're right, I'll stop. I'll stop for the next 30 days. He doesn't make an excuse. He, he doesn't do any of this. He keeps and holds fast to what he's doing and what's going on. Now remember, Daniel has seen kings come and kings go and kingdoms come, come and kingdoms go and empires rise and empires fall. So Daniel looks and goes, you think you've got the power. You don't have any. You don't recognize what I've seen. And my devotion, Daniel would say, my devotion to the eternal God is, just as he is, eternal. And you, what you're going to do, and what you expect me to do, and what culture says I should do, Daniel says, I'm not going to. I'll work with you. I'll do everything else. I'll do everything else I can except violate my relationship with my heavenly Father. Not going to compromise that. I'll work with you in just about every other regard. But that king is where I draw the limits. His devotion was unwavering. So the king gave the order. And they brought Daniel, and they threw him into the lion's den. And the king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. Now he'd probably heard about the burning furnace, He'd heard about these other stories because they made it around, but he didn't have an interaction with Daniel and his posse at this point. And the stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring, with the rings of the nobles, so that, the king's, or so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. This was a moment of no return for Daniel. This was it. He was either going to follow God or he was going to fold. And his life hung in the balance. Now, for many of us, we don't experience that. We don't have that kind of situation. We don't have that kind of, of issue that we struggle with. And Daniel held his devotion to the Lord to the end. So, Evening comes, evening goes. And at first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. Because he'd heard. He'd heard about this Yahweh God. He heard about this thing, that you know, this entity that the, that the Jews, you know, the Hebrews that they worship. So he's heard, but he's not sure. When he came near the lion's den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice. Daniel, servant of the living God. Notice how his tone has changed. Has your God... Whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions. And I'm sure that he expected silence. He expected nothing. No sound at all to come. But Daniel pipes up. May the king live forever. My God sent his angel, and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done anything wrong to you, your majesty. And the king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. When Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. You are going to have moments in your life where it's going to seem like it's a no-win situation. 
If you look at it from Daniel's perspective, it was a no-win situation. If he stayed connected to God and stayed with his relationship with God, he would be thrown into the lion's den and eaten alive by lions. I don't want to do that. And I'm certain he didn't either. But in the same time, if he doesn't, or if he, if he does, and just kind of caves on his faith and does whatever, pushes, you know, kind of just makes an excuse and lets it go and lets it happen and he compromises, well, now he's in violation with God. And he looks around and says, I'm going to be devoted. I trust God's got me in this situation. Now, if we were to go back and look at what Daniel said, it's the same thing that his friend said a couple weeks ago in the burning furnace. I'm confident that he could. I don't know if he will. But I'm going to trust him regardless. And there's going to be times in your life when things aren't going well. There's going to be times in your life when it feels like stuff is totally jacked up. And it can be things that you had no influence over. That it just happened and it just was an experience and there's just nothing that you can do. Moments when you don't have an answer and you're just like Daniel between a rock and a hard place and you're like, it feels like no matter what I do, no matter what decision I make, this is just going to be bad. There's no way out. I'm just kind of stuck. Those moments like when you got let go from your job. Or when somebody else gets the promotion that you know you deserve because you're the one that put in the work. And you're the one that did that last project. I mean, there's no way the boss could promote that other person. I mean, no way he could promote her. There's no way he could promote him. I mean, you did all the work. But that happens anyway. Or the, you know, some of us have experienced situations where she left. And you didn't do anything to cause it. Or he left. And you didn't do anything to cause it. And you look around and you go, God, where are you in this situation? I have to make a decision. I don't know what to do exactly. I'm not sure what this, this is just a hard situation. This is just difficult, God. Or maybe you get the doctor report and mom's not coming back from this one. She's beaten it a couple times before, but she's not going to beat it this time. Or maybe it's your doctor report. And we, we sit back and we get hit with these really, really, really hard moments. These so difficult moments. And when we sit in this tension, because that's what it is, it's tension. It's stress. We have options. And we're not really sure what to do all the time. But one of the things that we can do that ensures that we're living our best life regardless of the tension that we're living in, regardless of the situation we're existing in. One of the things we can do is change our attitude and we can trust God. Daniel trusted God. Daniel didn't necessarily know what was going to happen. He wasn't sure and I bet that if, you could, if Daniel could script it, he would have been like, I wasn't going to spend a whole night in the lion's den. Like, I bet if you gave him a notepad and said, Daniel, go ahead, write out what you want God to do, he would be like, I want God to make this decree go away tomorrow. I don't want to spend a night in the lion's den and worry that that angel's hands are going to get tired and let go of those mouths of the lions. So I want to just go ahead and not even worry about that. But that's not 
what happened. And why did it not happen? I don't know, and neither does Daniel. But what was so amazing was that Daniel's faith and trust in God. And you've heard me say this before. Trust is the currency of your relationships, both with your relationships with your spouse, your friends, and your heavenly father. The closeness of your relationship with him determines how much you really trust him. If you only trust him with a little bit, then your relationship is going to be very thin. If you only trust him to just give you just a little bit, and you only trust him just a, a, a tiny bit, then, then it's not going to be a very big or a deep relationship. And I know you, you, you hear this story, and you go through it, and you go, Brandon, that just sounds so rudimentary and so simple. It's so small. Come on, that can't really be what we're supposed to do. The truth is, it is. Sometimes the first step is just a little bit more trust. It's just a little bit more trust. Just a little bit more trust with him will get you just a little bit further. And in those moments when you hit the hard times and you're like, man, God, I don't know what I'm going to do for a job. God, I don't know what I'm going to do with this doctor report. God, I don't know what I'm going to do with these things. Take a breath and follow up that, God, I don't know, but I trust you. God, I don't know, but, but I believe that you've got something here that I don't see. Perfect example, uh, an easy, easier example, and this is not as heavy as what a lot of you are probably dealing with. But in 2020, you remember the world stopped because of COVID-19. Churches stopped meeting, businesses closed down. You know, you guys remember how it was. And then in the same year, we got slammed with racial tension and political tension in an election year. And if those of you that remember 2020, you remember what it was like. Well, right before that, the, the senior pastor of, of this church retired and handed the reins over to me in January. January, February, March. March. I had two and a half months. And then everything shut down. And in January, we started the building project too. And then everything slowed down. Everything stopped. And I remember, and I've told my leadership team this before, sitting back going, well, what do we do now? We placed the order for this equipment because we were going to use this equipment in the building, and then we already started the process with the building. So we placed the order to get this, not knowing when we're going to be able to meet again. And then everybody looks around and goes, well, we're not sure when we're going to come back and be comfortable meeting in person again. And it's like, well, let's do small groups. People are like, I don't want to be around people because I don't know what, like any one of us could kill each other, right? Like that was the thought. So that's what everybody, that's what a lot of people felt. And we turn around and I remember looking around going, oh man, this isn't really going that good. And then, so as soon as the state, you know, kind of lifted their restrictions, we met again in June, hey, June 28th, 2020, almost exactly two years ago today with 52 people at our first service. It was supposed to be a huge church launch, 52 people, almost all of them set up this joint, and we, had, we set up church to have church together, y'all, and we sat around, and we sung, and we praised, and it didn't stop us, but after that, attendance dropped back down to 30 or 40, or 40, and then back down to around 30, and stayed there for months. 
Now, don't forget, we've we got the building coming. We've got these bills that are still happening, right? We've got all this stuff, and there's no end in sight with the COVID crisis. We're figuring out how to do this online and everything else, which is just not the same. You guys understand that. And I looked around, and I was like, man, I don't know if this is going to work. I might have to find another job. I don't, and, I, and I remember looking at Lee, and I was going, man, if this thing goes belly up, I'm going to have to go back into the security world, go back into the military or the DOD or do something like that, because I don't know when this is going to end. I don't know if when people are going to be comfortable coming back and worshiping together. Uh, I don't know when this is going, any of this is going to stop. I don't even know if we can get enough momentum to get this thing off the ground. But I remember looking around, and I remember being concerned, self-conscious, nervous, sitting around going, God. And then I'm watching all the big churches either close campuses or, or, or worried about things that are going to happen, and I'm like, I don't know how this little thing's going to get going. And I remember I prayed, and I prayed hard, and it became very clear to me that this was where God wanted me and where God wanted my family. And it was scary, and it was terrifying. And I remember praying and thinking and thinking and talking it over with Leah. And I, I just remember looking over one time and saying, man, I just can't leave these people. There's just, I just, I can't. There's nothing I, it's just not going to happen. God's got us here. I'm confident he's got us here. And maybe it's to put this thing to bed slowly. I don't know. But I just know I'm going to trust him and that he's got it figured out. And if this doesn't work, because, you know, I'm a human too. I'm not just a pastor. So I'm thinking about my family. How am I going to afford to feed my family if, if my job goes under? How do I work that out? And I'm going through the process, and I was just confident. I became confident over time that God had me in the palm of his hand. He had our family in the palm of his hand. And I said, whatever is going to happen, I trust you. If it's, if it's this and it survives and everything is great, fantastic. If it's not, and I need to do something else, and our family needs to do something else, and we've got to just kind of find another church or whatever, like whatever that looks like, we're going, to, we're going to do that. But whatever it is, we trust you. And that was so relieving. That was so relieving. And so we did our best with the leadership team and with the team that came on Sundays. We kept God at the center, and we keep him at the center, and we talk about it every day in huddle, that all this is for him, and all the glory points to him, and that's why we're here, and we're going to keep him in the center, and we kept plugging along, kept plugging along, kept plugging along, and then you guys have been part of this. We averaged 75 or 80 through the summer. We did, we, up to this point, over this point, we've had five baptisms. We've, or we've had four baptisms, excuse me, five child dedications. God could see the picture that I could not see. Now, it's not always going to work that way. And I would be irresponsible if I stood up here and said, every single time that you trust God, you're going to get exactly what you want. Because what I wanted was for it all to stop right now. I would love for people to flood in. I would love to see a hundred baptisms in the first year. I would love to see us throw that building up bigger than what we've ever been able to do. I would love to be able to launch a dream center or community center out of that building. Like, if you want to talk what I would love and what I expected and what I wanted, that didn't happen. 
But it didn't matter because it was a matter of trust. And at that moment, and in those moments, that's when my and God's relationship got even deeper. Was when we were in the storm. I looked out over the water and said, I trust you. Do you remember what Jesus said to Peter when Peter stepped out onto the boat? Ye have little faith when he went down. Ye have little trust. Don't you trust me? When Jesus reached down, when Peter stepped out and walked on the water and then he sunk down, Jesus reaches down and grabs him and he says, don't you trust me? Come on. Don't you trust me? Peter probably wasn't expecting to walk on water that day. And you may not be expecting what's the next season in your life. But just like Jesus reached down for Peter, we have the opportunity also. He does the same thing for us every time. Those big moments, those big decisions, those big things where you just can't figure it out. Hear his voice. Don't you trust me? Yeah, it may not be the way you want it to be. It may not function the way you want. It may not be exactly the way you would script it. But God can see it from a whole different angle. He's operating at 30,000 feet, and we're operating right around 10. So come on. Who do you trust? Who do you trust? Do you trust yourself? Do you think that you're going to be able to solve all the problems? Do you think you have all the answers? Do you think that you can create, that, that no matter what hardship comes, that you can fix it or you have the solution? Or are you going to come to a place where you're willing to trust God a little bit more? doesn't have to be overnight, okay? You don't have to do what I did and put your whole career in the hands like that, okay, when, I, when we did the secret service thing. You don't have to do that kind of thing. But maybe just a little bit more trust in what you have now. In fact, maybe while we were talking, there's been a thing that he's been trying to get you to trust him with that you just refuse to let go of. You know, that thing that you've been praying about, and then he says, okay, give it to me. And you're like, hold on, though. I want you to let me keep it. I just want you to, like, you know, make it easier. And God's like, no, I need you to give it to me. I need you to trust me with it. Because if you trust me with it, I can do something really cool. But as long as you hold on to it, and as long as you're going to be the solution, and as long as you think you can fix everything, I can't do as much. And your relationship with your Heavenly Father is only going to get better. It's only going to get better when you begin to trust him just a little bit more today than you did yesterday. And if you truly want to live your best life, then you have to learn, and we have to learn, I have to learn, to trust God in the storm, even when it's hard. Trusting God even when it's hard. Trusting God even when the paycheck's not what it's supposed to be. Trusting God even when you didn't get the answer you wanted from your boss. Trusting God even though she's dating that guy. Trusting God even though he's dating her. Trusting God even though. Let's be a trusting God even though church instead of a trusting God only when it's easy.